Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. We hope you enjoy today's message. Same place we were last week in John chapter 3. In John chapter 3, and uh, we're going to be looking at the story of Nicodemus. And so we're going to uh, go back and read all the verses that we read last week, the first uh, first eight verses, but we're going to read all the way to verse 21 because there's, a, there's, more, there's more to the story. There's more to the story. And so last week, we, we titled the sermon, um, From Curious to Committed. From Curious to Committed. But I'm going to add a subtitle this week, From Curious to Committed, Questions That Need Answers. Questions That Need Answers. From Curious to to committed questions that need answers. And we're going to look at this story um, of Nicodemus. And if you don't have a Bible, we, they'll, they'll be on the screen. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21 says this, There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, he's talking to Jesus, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus poses a question, one that needs an answer. How can anyone be born when he is old, Nicodemus asked, that's a legitimate question in my opinion, can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born again? Once again, that's the conclusion I would come to. And Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh. And whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be? Nicodemus asks another question that needs an answer. And Jesus asks a question. He responds to his question with the question, Are you the teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Jesus replied, Truly, I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe them, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one who has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and 
people loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. Let us pray. Father, we just honor you today, God. We thank you today, Father. Just your grace is sufficient for us. We thank you, Father, that on this Sunday we have come as a people to gather and to hear your word, God. Um, Lord, we pray ultimately, God, above all that we ask, Lord, is that your son Jesus would be made known today. Lord, I pray that the gospel would be so compelling, God, to us today that it radically transforms our lives, that we respond to the call of God. Father, I pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that you would work in our hearts, that you would renew our minds, that the blinders would be taken off, that, that we would have spiritual sight, that we would see, and that we would also experience the kingdom of God. And so, Father, I pray for everyone in this room today, God, who may be going through different issues. Father, we all have things that we're going through. We're all dealing with things that would distract us from focusing on you, God. But today, I pray for these few moments that we have together, God. I pray that you would turn down the background noise of our lives. I pray, God, that we will be able to hear you, God, hear you clearly, Father. I pray that our hearts will be convicted and encouraged at the same time. And so, Father, we just give you the glory today. We give you the honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And the people of God said, Amen. You may be seated in the Lord's house, from curious to committed, from curious to committed, questions that need answers, questions that need answers. I would venture to guess that everyone in this room, we all have questions in our lives that we would like the answer to today. There are all things that we wonder about our family, all things we wonder about our personal lives and our professional lives. And we wish that we had some answers today that we don't have. Many of us are wondering about what is going to happen. How is the future going to play, play out? Will, will I ever get married? Will, will I ever find this job that I long for? Will I ever make this certain amount of money? How will my kids eventually turn, turn out? What, what will the future look like for me? How is God going to use me in the next five to 10 years? What, what is my life going to look like? Those are all good and legitimate questions. But the, the ultimate question I can say for every believer, the ultimate question for us has already been answered in Christ Jesus. The ultimate question is not what job will I have, not how much money will I make, not when will my relationship status change or how will this thing work out or not what school will I get into or how will I be able to afford to pay for this. The ultimate question that we all have had answered, if we, we are believers, is how can I be saved? And the answer to that question is found in Christ Jesus. And so the ultimate question that we have has already been answered. Everything else that we think about and every other question that comes to our mind is truly secondary. But as we pick up the text today, that question still has not been answered for our dear friend Nicodemus. We pick right up once again in the story where Nicodemus is still curious and still asking questions, yet not believing. He is the picture at this point of someone who learned a lot about God. He knows his Bible. He went to Sunday school. He went to VBS. He learned a lot about God, but yet his heart has not fully opened to truly see God for who he is. And here Nicodemus is 
having a conversation with Jesus about the new birth, about being born again and about the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is not just some ordinary person. The Bible tells us that Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. He's a political and religious figure. He's a dignified person. He's a worthy person. He's a distinguished person. He is a good person, a person who is responsible. He takes care of things. He's someone that people look to in his community, but he's come to Jesus in secrecy. He's come to Jesus in the thick of night, trying not to be found out by his religious contemporaries. He has come to Jesus in secrecy and darkness, but he's at the same time unaware of his own spiritual insufficiency. He comes to Jesus and he says, hey, I, I, we, we, not me, but we, speaking for everybody else almost, we acknowledge that you come from God because we wouldn't see these things that we see from you if God was not with you. And Jesus then turns everything that Nicodemus believes about God in the kingdom upside down on his head. Jesus tells Nicodemus that in order for you to actually see the kingdom or to enter into the kingdom, you must be born again. You must be born from God. Jesus does not mean that Nicodemus must somehow find his birth mother and go find his mom and say, yo, mama, let's try to reverse engineer this thing. That that's not what Jesus is saying. But he is saying the same way that a child has nothing to do with his natural birth, in the same way a person who is born again of God has nothing to do with their spiritual birth. For a person to be born again is not a matter of works, but it's a matter of God's grace. Let me say that today. I know I say this every Sunday, but that's what the gospel is. The gospel is not about works. It's not about human achievement. It's not about merit, but the gospel is a gospel of grace. We are saved by grace through faith. Our salvation in Christ Jesus is a precious gift. It's not something that we can work for. It's not something that we earn because if we did, we take credit for it. But life in God it's not a matter of accomplishments. Rather, it is a gift of God's grace accomplished by the works of someone else. Jesus tells Nicodemus this, and Nicodemus' mind is blown. His mind is blown. He can't believe what he's hearing, and he still has questions. He still has questions. You ever explain something to somebody, and they just don't get it? And it can be so frustrating. I feel, I feel bad for people with kids. They just ask you the same thing over and over and over again, no matter how plain you try to make it. But we do the same things at times with God. But here in this particular text, I want to discuss four things that this text reveals about spiritual questions and the way in which we can deal with the questions that we have. And so we're going to look at four things today. Number one, we must trust the source. Who you get your information from matters. Number one, we must trust the source. Number two, we must look to the source. Number three, we must love the source. And number four, we must live by the source. Number one, trust the source. Number two, look to the source. Number three, love the source. And number four, live by the source. After Jesus has explained this new birth in the kingdom to Nicodemus, Nicodemus' response in verse 9 is this, how 
can these things be? How can these things be? Nicodemus is not saying, how can these things be? Like, wow, that's amazing. I believe you. That, that's, that's, that's so mind-blowing that, that I, I'm, I'm excited about this information. No, he's saying, how can these things be? Like, bro, I don't believe you. That This is a hefty dose of disbelief and skepticism. And, and, and don't we, we all hate when, when, when someone comes to you with questions and you give them the answer, but they get mad at the answer that you gave them to the question that they ask you. Don't you hate that? And you, you end up getting frustrated, and, and they come to you, and you, get, they give, you give them the honest answer, even sometimes when they don't want to hear it, and then they respond, and they question you, and you're like, well, if you didn't want to hear what I had to say, why did you come to me in the first place? And we get imp impatient with people, but God is not like this. Thank God that he deals with our stupid questions. And Jesus does something that we hate again. Jesus also does something that we hate. Jesus responds with Nicod to Nicodemus' question with a question. Don't you hate when you ask somebody something and they respond to you with a question? And you're like, if I knew the answer, I wouldn't ask you. But Jesus responds to him with a question because Nicodemus is actually somebody who would have been familiar with what Jesus is talking about. He's a ruler of the Jews. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He is a teacher. He's a master of the law of God. He would have been familiar with the Old Testament, with the law, and with the prophets. He was a teacher of other people. And so when Jesus says, are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things, he's saying you should have already known this. You are an expert. You, you should know this information. Jesus telling Nicodemus about the new birth is not something that Jesus just made up on the spot. This was something that the prophets of Israel spoke about. This was something that Jeremiah spoke about, something that Ezekiel spoke about. They both touched on the topic of the new birth. Matter of factly, when we look at Ezekiel 36, we talked about this last week, Ezekiel talks about how God said he would give them a new heart and he would give them a new spirit. He would turn their heart of stone, a dead heart that is unresponsive to a heart of flesh and a live heart that can respond to God. He would put his spirit within them so that they would long for God, they would desire God, and they would have the ability to follow God's commands. That is the new birth, so he should have known this. But here's the problem. He knew this intellectually, but he didn't know it experientially. Let me say this, because you can't turn side outside out of Nicodemus because we do the same things. We talk about freedom, but we don't experience it. We know Galatians tells us, for freedom, Christ has set us free, but ain't it a trip that sometimes you don't experience that freedom yourself? When God tells us, forgive, we know that we should forgive, but how often, because we've been hurt before, do we struggle with forgiveness? We know it from information, but we don't know it by experience. And this is what's happening to Nicodemus, because knowledge of God is more than information. Knowledge of God signifies that you actually have a relationship with him. If you have a relationship with God, that means that we know more of God. We can understand God. What, what, what we see in Nicodemus is not a failure of intellect, but what we see in Nicodemus is a disbelief. He, he's smart. He you don't get to be a member of the Sanhedrin if you're not an intellectual person. But just because you got the highest score on an SAT does not mean you understand the things of God. Just because you can quote Scripture doesn't necessarily mean you know Scripture. And this is what's happening with Nicodemus. He, 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 he ha he's having an encounter with Jesus, 
but he still doesn't see Jesus for who he is. And Jesus is talking to him, and Jesus is telling him what he needs to know. But the problem with Nicodemus is Nicodemus isn't trusting the source. And so we look at verses 11 through 13, we see that we should trust the source. Here's what he says in verses 11 through 13. Truly, I tell you, we speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. This is Jesus talking. He says, if I told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's saying, we testify from what we know and what we've seen. I think Jesus is probably referencing Jesus is referencing himself and maybe the Father because Jesus is getting at something. Jesus is saying, I'm not speaking to you, Nicodemus, from a textbook. I'm not speaking from theory. I'm speaking from reality. I tell you what I know from experience. I don't get this from a source. I am the source. That's what he's saying to him. But, but you failed, Nicodemus, to trust the source. I love the way Dr. Eugene Peterson summarizes, uh, summarizes this verse. He says, yet instead of trusting the evidence, you procrastinate with questions. It's not that it's unclear to Nicodemus, it's just unacceptable. And so Jesus is the only person who can truly answer these questions about heavenly things. Why? Because Jesus is the only person that has gone up to heaven that's actually from heaven in the first place. Jesus didn't take a vacation to heaven to tell us about what he saw and took some pictures and stood by some monuments and did some sightseeing with a tour guide or on a tour bus. No, Jesus didn't do that when he went to heaven. Jesus knows everything about heaven, not because he visited heaven, but because he's from there. And somebody from a place can tell you far more information about it than someone who was just passing through on a vacation. And Jesus is saying, I can tell you about these heavenly things. I can testify about it because I'm actually from there. I am uniquely qualified to testify about spiritual realities because I come from heaven. You can trust Jesus because Jesus has resurrected from the grave. If you ever had any questions about trusting Jesus, if you ever had any questions about trusting the word of God, here's why you can trust Jesus. Because no one else died and resurrected from the grave never to die again. That is why we can trust him. And because of the resurrection, we can not only trust the source, we can do the second thing. We can look. We can look to the source. Look at verses 14 through 15. Look at verses 14 through 15. Jesus says something very interesting. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now, why is Jesus interjecting somebody else into this conversation? Nicodemus is like, this is an A and B conversation, and here you go bringing in Moses. Well, Jesus is bringing Moses into the conversation because Jesus is trying to make a point in verse 14. Jesus is actually, I think, once again undermining Nicodemus's credibility as a teacher and someone who understands the law of God because he's pointing out that he doesn't understand it. In Numbers, particularly Numbers 21, it tells the story of Israel's journey in the wilderness, their wilderness wanderings. God had saved them from bondage. God saved them from slavery. He brought them out. They could not get themselves out of it. God went and got his people out, brought them into the wilderness. God is taking care of them in the wilderness, providing for them in the wilderness. And all of a sudden, the people of God start complaining while they're in the wilderness. They literally 
say, how come you brought us out of this, this wilderness? You could have left us in slavery. For, how, how about this? We should be mindful oftentimes when we complain about where we are in the present, not appreciating where God brought us from. And, and they're complaining. God is feeding them, and they're complaining. They literally say, we, we, don't, we don't have food. We're thirsty, and the food that we do have, this food is wretched food. It's ramen noodles, and we want steak. And they're complaining. They're eating, but complaining. They're eating God's food that they couldn't get on their own, but they're complaining about, to God about the food that he's providing for them. And God says, oh, okay, I see who you are. You're an ungrateful type of people. So here's what God does to respond to them. If you read Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9, God says, I got a plan for this. I'm going to discipline you. So God sends poisonous snakes into the camp to start biting the Israelites, and the Israelites start dying off one by one because they were complaining. That's how serious God took their complaining. They start dying off. God sent these poisonous snakes into the camp. The Israelites start getting bit and start dying. And so they, of course, was like, oh, sorry. So God, we're sorry. They said, Moses, please get in contact with God. We didn't, mean, we didn't mean to complain. We will eat these ramen noodles. Moses says, okay, I'll intercede to God. God says, okay, they, they repent. They're sorry. Here's what I'm going to do. Moses, I want you to take and make an image of a snake. I want you to take the image of a snake, and I want you to lift it up and put it on a pole. Moses makes a bronze snake. He makes the bronze snake, a fake snake, lifts it up on the pole, and God says to Moses, if the Israelites get bit by a poisonous snake, all they need to do is lift up their eyes and look at the snake of the po on the pole, and they will live. If they look up, they will live. And Jesus is saying the same way that that worked for the children in the wilderness, the Son of Man must not be lifted up on a pole, but lifted up on a cross. And if any of his people ever get bitten by sin, all they need to do is look to what is up on the cross. If they look up on the cross, and here's essentially what he's saying, if you've been bit, by the poison of sin, if the slippery serpent from the garden has seduced you to sin, know that the wages of sin is death, but if you look up to the one that has been lifted up, you will live and not die. Matter of fact, you will live and you will keep living because you will have eternal life in him. And what he's saying is if you're dealing with sin, if you dealt with his consequences, the remedy to that is to turn away from that sin and look to where life comes from, which is Jesus, the crucified Savior that hung on the cross for you and I. This is what he's saying. To look on that bronze snake was their only hope for survival. And if we look up to Jesus, it is also our only hope for survival. And so we don't just trust the source. We look up to the source. He says anyone who believes in him will have eternal life. And let me say this about believing in God, because most people think that if they know something about God, they believe in him. If you poll most people and you ask them, do you believe in God? They'll say, yep, I believe in God. Here's what biblical belief means. Biblical belief actually means that I turn away from my sin and I look to God and I put my faith and my trust in Christ Jesus. 
I turn to him for forgiveness and salvation, and I put my hope in him. I turn away from my old life, and I embrace Christ Jesus. So when we say we believe in God, I say this every Sunday, it's not that we believe that he exists, but we believe that he is who he said he is. We believe that we can trust in him for our very lives. And so we have eternal life. What we're saying is my life is not my own. I don't trust in what I can get done. I don't trust in my own salvation. I don't trust in my own works. But I trust in God and that he has saved me from my sins. And in him I have life. In him I have forgiveness. In him I have love. Because of him I have eternal life. And so... He says, whoever believes in him will have eternal life, this life in the kingdom now and in the future. To have eternal life is to experience the love of God, joy, peace, forgiveness, and the grace of God. All because God has made a way through the death and resurrection of his son. And because of that, we not only can look to the source, but because of that, we love the source. Let's look at verses 16 through 8 in the most famous scripture in the Bible, the greatest scripture ever is going to reveal the greatest act of love ever. If there was one verse in the Bible that summarizes the entire Bible, the entire Bible is John 3.16. You, you, you've heard this since, since the day you were born. This is on every bumper sticker. This is on, every, in, in, on some wall in somebody's house. Somebody has this uh, bookmark. You've met somebody that has this tattooed on their arm, don't know nothing about Jesus but has John 3, 16 tattooed on their arms somewhere. This is the most famous scripture in the whole world, and here's what it says. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who, be everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And here's, a, here's something that he debunks in verse 17. Because people so afraid of Jesus, they think that Jesus condemns them. But here's what God says about his son. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. So what does it mean? For God to love the world, this lifting up that we talked about, this lifting up, this crucifixion, was a cruel punishment. So when you wear a cross on your neck, it, it's, it's more than just some cool jewelry. It, it's more than something that just makes you fly. It, it's something more than you just wear, wear on your neck or tattoo on your arm or on your chest. But this means so much because to die on the cross the most cruel way that a criminal would die. Roman citizens didn't even speak of the cross. This was reserved for the worst of society. This, this was a bloody and a gruesome event. This was a very violent death. But even if you ask the question, why would God do that to his son? Why would God do that to his son? Even with the violence of the cross, it is rooted in the love of God. God did it because he loved us. For God so loved the world. It describes this intense love that God has for us. God so loved the world. He didn't just love Jews or Samaritans. God loved the whole world. His love was not confined to some ethnic group. His, his, his love 
I scattered to everyone. He loved everyone. And so God's the, the direct result of the love of God is what he did for us through his son. And so here's, here's what I need you to know. We don't, we don't know people love us mainly because they say, I love you. How many people have said, I love you? And then you realize they didn't really love me. We throw that thing around like it's a football. We say I love you to everybody. And I'm not saying you don't mean it when you say it, but I will say this, that saying I love you means more than words. H has anyone ever told you they love you verbally, but you came to the conclusion that that, that just can't be the case? You, you didn't come to that conclusion that someone loved you or not because they said it. You knew if they loved you or not because they acted on it. You, you didn't come to that conclusion with mere words. You came to the conclusion, oh, I know they love me because they did something for you. And so we don't know God's love because the word says, for he so loved the world. The proof of God's love for us is that God acted on it. God saw us how we were, and God did something about it. We can be confident in the love of God, not because we read the words in the Bible, I love you, or he so loved the world, but because we can see the demonstration of his love through his son. And so when believers ask, why won't your God do something? If your God is so loving, if your God is so kind, why won't your God do something about all this evil in the world? You can respond with confidence. He already did. He sent his son. And so, what was the demonstration? It was the greatest demonstration of love that's ever happened. God gave his one and only son. One and only son. This is a serious gift that he gave us. This was not the father giving away the son that he didn't want. This wasn't the father giving away some throwaway gift. This wasn't the God having received the gift from somebody else and not really feeling the gift and then repackage it to give it to somebody else on Christmas because you didn't want it. I, I feel the guilt all in this place. This was not the father giving away one of his other children, but keeping his favorite to the side. No, God gave his unique son. God did not just give his only son. God gave his best to us. This was a giving type of love. This is an agape love. God didn't just, didn't just give something. God gave to us his very heart. So I suggest to you that God didn't just give him son. his son. God gave himself to us. This is how much God, God loves us, and we can see the cross. It is the ultimate expression of his love, that bloody, that gruesome cross, that, that suffering and sacrifice that had to be made. It cost something. So for us, salvation is free, but it's not cheap. It's free, but it's not cheap. And so we see this, that God so loved the world, you can get all this confidence about, ooh, God loves something about me. But the text is not about our loveliness because apart from God, we were not lovely. The love of God is not to be admired because he says, I so love the world because the world is so big. The love of God is not to be admired because the world is so big, but, big, but because the world is so bad. Romans 5 and 8 tells us this. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were sinners... Christ died for us. You didn't get yourself together and then God loved you. <laughs> God loved you right where you were. Ephesians tells us we, we were by nature children under wrath and dead in our trespasses. And God loved us in that state. God's love for us didn't begin at the cross. It was the love that he had for us that sent his son to the cross. 
But we miss this. Contrary to what we believe, it's not about our loveliness that wins his love, but it was our unloveliness. Our sins opened the floodgates to God's heart and his compassion for us. God saw us the way we were, and God loved us anyway. He sent his most prized and valuable possession to us to save us. There is no way that we can measure this love. How can you measure a love this wide and this vast? He died to prove that God's love is like an ocean without a shore or without a bottom. This is how wide his love is. He loves us that much that there is no limit to his love. This is not some type of love that is selfish, but it is a selfless love. God can't help but to love. I love the way Dane Ortland puts it in his book, Gentle and Lowly. He says, for God to cease to love his own, God would need to cease to exist because God does not simply have love. He is love. And when I think about this, I don't think... Man, God is all right. I think, man, there is no way I could ever repay him for this. But something in my heart compels me to try. What other response is, is even worth than to give him your whole life? This is why how we live is so important. Because if God loved us in his way, who are we to say, God, I don't think your way is right? Who are we to disobey God? But, but God loved us so much to save us. The sacrifice was so great. What, what is our response besides worship? What, what is our response? And so we look at Ephesians and Apostle Paul. Now it makes so much sense to me when we think about the love of God. Here's what Paul says, Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray, I pray, I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and what is the width and the height and the depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now it makes sense. God's love is so wide we can't even understand it. It doesn't even make sense. He loved us in this way so that we would have eternal life and that we wouldn't perish. That we would not be tormented forever. Let me speak on perishing. And I, I, would, I would love to skip over this part. But the Bible has this idea about, about perishing. Perishing literally means complete destruction of a thing. When we talk about eternal perishing, we're not talking about God we go to heaven and God burns us to a point where we're annihilated. No, we think about the idea of hell. I know you're not supposed to talk about hell in church. We think about this idea. It is not something where you will be unconscious. You will be tormented forever and you will experience all of it. There's this movie that comes on TNT, I think, or T TNT, I think, or one of, these, one of these channels. TNT or TBS, it comes on almost every week. It's called Law Abiding Citizen. It's a great movie. You should watch it. This movie stars Gerard Butler, who is an engineer of sorts, whose family is killed by these two armed robbers, thieves. They, they, they kill his family for no apparent reason. They go to trial um, because they can't prove that these people did it. They get off. And so years pass by. Gerard Butler is doing everything he can to get his attorney, Jamie Foxx, to persecute these guys. If Jamie Foxx is your attorney, you're in trouble. 
And so <laughs> um, you're better off with Perry Mason. Or, you don't know who Perry Mason is. Never mind. Judge Joe Math, Judge Mathis, whatever. Um, but, but, but he doesn't get these guys prosecuted, rather. And, and so Gerard Butler spends all these years preparing on how he's going to pay everybody back. And once he catches one of these guys, he brings him into this garage somewhere that he has, and he has plotted out for years how he's going to torture this guy. But while he's torturing him, before he tortures him, he gives him some sort of medication to make sure that he stays alive for the entire time that he's being tortured. Matter of fact, he puts a mirror up on top of the ceiling so the guy can watch himself being tortured. He peels the guy's eyes wide open so the guy can't even blink. He has to watch the whole thing. And he's alive the entire time that he is being tormented. And this is what hell is like. I want you to think about the worst pain that you've ever experienced in your life and multiply that times infinity. This is what hell is like. And you may say, man, that's terrible. How can God be a God of love? Because God has made a way that you don't have to deal with that. And it's called his son, Jesus, who came into the world not to condemn us. People think that Jesus condemns people, but no, the world was already condemned. Before Jesus came, we were already under the wrath of God because of sin. And Jesus comes into the world to save us from that condemnation. And so we say that we are that we are free from condemnation. We are free from condemnation because of the love of God. One of my favorite verses or scriptures, passages in the Bible is Romans 8, 31 through 38. Look at this. Look at what Romans says. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? If he did not even spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him grant us everything. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ is the one who died, but even more, he has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because you are being or we are being put to death all the day long we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for i am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor any creature or created thing will be able to separate us from the love of god that is in christ jesus our lord his love is so great we can't even understand it. Now, if we think about the love of God and what he has saved us from, now it makes sense why John later says we love because he first loved us. The reason why we have the ability to love God is because God loved us first. And what is the proper response to the one that has loved you? The proper response is to love him back. But we don't love him with our words. We love him with our life. Which brings me to my final point. We not only love the source, but we live by the source. Look at verses 19 through 21. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works 
may be shown to be accomplished by God. Throughout John's letter, Jesus is described as a light. In him was life, and his life was the light of men. But people don't love Jesus because they don't love the light. Rather, they love something else. People love their darkness. And so why do they love darkness and hate the light? Because with the light, you know what happens with the light. If you turn on the lights, then things become exposed. And there's fear and there's shame. There's guilt that is associated with it. And so people would rather love darkness and hate the light. Well, people often say, well, you know what? You can love Jesus and love darkness too. You can love Jesus and love your sin at the same time, right? But remember what Jesus said. No one can serve two masters. Either he will love one and hate the other. You you can't love Jesus and love the world at the same time. You got to make a choice. So it is with every sin that keeps us away from God. We either love him or we love our sin. Here's what I want to say to you. When we feel some sort of conviction in our hearts about our sin or some sort of shame or guilt, let that drive you to the cross. Let that drive you to repentance. God's patience with us, his kindness with us is meant to bring us to repentance. If God has been putting up with us and God has been dealing with us in our struggles and our issues, the response to that is repentance. God must love me because God keeps contending with me even in my mess. And this is what he's saying. Back to Nicodemus. So we have this conversation with Nicodemus that happens in John chapter 3. But that's not the end of Nicodemus' story. If you're wondering if it, if it ever landed, if Nicodemus' eyes were ever open, Nicodemus is a story of someone who the word of God did not fall on fallow ground. Instead, he heard the good news and he responded to it with his life. Let's look at Nicodemus' progression, and then I'm done. John chapter 7, verses 50 through 51. This is when they're trying to condemn Jesus, hang Jesus up. This is the Pharisees, and this is Nicodemus amongst his peers. And Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously... And was one of them said to, said to them, our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? And what we see here is Nicodemus taking a stand for Jesus in front of his peers. We see a man that is willing to risk something significant. He's willing to risk his livelihood to stand up for Jesus. But some of us can't even say that we're believers when we go to work. But when that gospel gets a hold of you, you're not ashamed of it. You will boldly declare it to anybody who's listening. And we see this happening with Nicodemus. We see a man who was curious about God. Now he's so committed that he's willing to stand up for Jesus in front of the same people that he was peers with. But that's not the end of his story. After Jesus has been crucified, who shows up on the scene in John 19? Let's look at this. Nicodemus who had previously come to him at night. You know why they put previously had come to him at night? Because now Nicodemus is out in the, in the daylight, standing up for Jesus. What was once a secret, what was once a secret faith, is now public faith. Nicodemus also came, bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, 
They took Jesus' body, wrapped it in linen clothes with, the fragrance, with fragrant spices, according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in the place where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. They placed Jesus there because of the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby. Here we see, and I'm done, the actions of a man that has been born again. We see, we see Nicodemus coming to Jesus in darkness, spiritually blind. And we see his story ending as a committed follower of Jesus. So much so that everybody else has left. Here's Nicodemus, one of the few who's standing with Jesus even in his death. So the question that needed answering, how can these things be? For Nicodemus, I assume... When he saw Jesus being lifted up on that cross, it dawned on him. This is how I have the new birth. And this is how I enter into the kingdom of God. He told me, but I didn't get it. Have you ever had somebody say something to you years ago, gave you sound advice, and then one day you said, oh, that makes sense. When you get older, Everything that your parents says, well, not everything. 75% of the stuff that your parents said makes so much more sense. But when you heard it the first time, you were not able to comprehend it. But because of maturity and experience, your eyes were open. And parents now find themselves giving the same advice that they once did not understand. And so it is with us spiritually that at one point we were in darkness, not able to understand or comprehend, but because of Jesus and his cross, because of the Spirit of God, our eyes have been opened to see the truth and to see God for who he is. I think Nicodemus on this faithful Friday had all of his questions answered on a Sunday morning when that guy that he had the conversation with, who he wasn't sure who he was, was raised to life. And every single question that he had was finally answered. And let me suggest to you today, you may have many questions the main question that you need an answer to has already been provided. The answer is found in Jesus Christ. The answer is only found in him. So I want to encourage you today that because we have this answer, even when you have questions about other things, you can rest in the one that has the ultimate answer. That if he got out of the grave, whether you know or have all of these questions in your mind about life and what's going to happen, if you know the answer or not, you can trust in the one who has provided the only answer that you'll ever need. You can trust in him with your life. You can trust in what his word says because he got up out of that grave. The story of Nicodemus is a story of a man who was curious about God, but we can see the progression and the journey from curiosity to commitment. God's love has found us. God's love has chased us down. Now, only response is to turn and worship.
Some of us, we know that God loves us. But some of us have not grasped in the way that we could. If you knew what God gave to save you, it will make your life radically different. Your heart posture will be completely different. We would never just walk around offending God and being okay with it. But our hearts would break with the things that break his heart. So today, I want to challenge you not just to know information about God, but I want you to experience his love today. I want you to sit for a moment and think about that God didn't wait for you to clean it up to love you. But God found you right where you were in your sin, in darkness, right in the mess. And God came and poured out his love on you. We don't deserve that. But that's the type of God that we serve. The response to that is to love God and love his people so that he may be glorified. Let us pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.